0: Turn in your Bibles if you would please to John chapter 2 we have been studying the life and the footsteps of Christ we're about nine weeks into it so if you're visiting here that's what we're doing. Um, we, we normally just take a book of the Bible and go from chapter one to the end of the chapter and we do that from Genesis to, to revelation but recently God has uh, laid on my heart to to teach um, about Christ and about his his journey while while he he was here, and uh, our first lesson was in the eternal in John chapter one, that in the beginning Jesus already existed. But um, this morning we find ourselves um, looking at John chapter two, and this is his first miracle. Let me get myself situated here. Follow along with me, and then we'll um, back up and look at it verse by verse. It tells us that the third day there was a marriage in Canaan of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to this marriage. And when they had wanted wine, the mother of Jesus says unto him, they have no wine. And Jesus said unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet come. His mother said unto him or unto the servants, pardon me, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three furlings apiece. Jesus said unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Notice that. He said unto them, "Draw, draw out now and bear it unto the governor of the feast, and they bared it. And when the ruler of the feast, the governor, had tasted the water... That was made wine. He he knew not whence it was where it came from. But the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom. I bet you they were sweating bullets. And said unto him, every man at the beginning does set forth the good stuff, the good wine. And when the men have well drunk, then they bring out the boon farm. That's (laughs) more modern. Could have said Thunderbird, but I don't know if you all would have known what that was. But. Um, and when they had well drunk, they, they brought out the worst. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning the miracles, uh, the miracle did Jesus at, are in Canaan of Galilee manifest forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Would you be kind enough again to stand with Bible in hand? Let's pray. Father God, again, we thank you for the opportunity just to to be so blessed with just the different parts of the the body, we think of uh, Santos and his ministry, Lord, with drugs and alcohol and and patty to to the community that she ministers to god and lord we 're so blessed to be and to know that we here we 're a part of that body somehow, and that we all fit together perfectly, making up the body of Christ. And to have your word before us to learn more and to sharpen the weapon as it were, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Lord, we don't we don't we don't take that lightly. We ask again that your Holy Spirit would come, and whatever's distracting us, we would be able to set that at your feet. Whatever burden we might be carrying, we might be able just go to Calvary for a moment and set that at the cross. Lord, give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to the church today. Lord, we really need. Um, As Rich would say, our marching orders, God, from you. Well, just again, ask for the anointing upon our ears, our hearts, our eyes to receive your word. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, again, um, some will call this, you know, uh, Jesus' first miracle. Um, There are some who would like to uh, contradict that and say that there are other historical books known as the Apocrypha um, that states that Jesus um, did miracles before um, he entered into public ministry. Uh, That's something we had studied, I believe, last week or two weeks ago, pardon me, uh, when Jesus entered his uh, public ministry there at the Jordan River, The declaration was made by John and also by God the Father. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Then God makes his declaration. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That is when he is introduced into his public ministry. Up to that time we have only the silent years. And we covered that maybe four weeks ago. Those silent years from the age of 12 until he entered into his public ministry around 29, 30 years of age. We have nothing really recorded. The only couple things that we know about him is that he did go to the synagogue uh, uh, weekly. It says, as was his accustomed. So we assume that that takes us all the way back then. And and the other commentary we have is, this is my beloved son, and man, I am well pleased with him. And it couldn't be in reference to the cross or the garden or anything like that. That had not happened yet. So we assume that he was well, um, well, he was approved of and because of maybe those silent years. Speculation, perhaps, but still none the least. And so he now, uh, so what do we do with those historical books? Well, I don't know. But it, well, the Bible tells us that this was Jesus' first miracle, and I believe that what we have in hand today is the inerrant word of God. And so I have to assume that maybe these were stories, myths that were handed down through some generations to different authors. And they created some of these books known as um, the Apocrypha. But nothing to struggle with. Please, guys, don't struggle with this. We here believe Jesus. this is Jesus' first Miracle. It tells us in verse 1 that the third day there was again a marriage in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called his disciples to that marriage. Now, uh, Canaan of Galilee, literally, that's a region. And um, it's kind of north next to the Sea of Galilee, and it's roughly between eight to nine miles away from Nazareth. Now, the reason I bring that up to you is that... Unlike today, if you lived in a nine or ten mile radius, everyone knew everyone. Uh, What else were you going to do? You weren't going to sit down and listen to Fox or CNN or get distracted by just the craziness of the world. Part of that culture was everyone knew everyone. You know when there was a wedding, everybody went to the wedding you know when there, when there was a a bar mitzvah they can call it back that then back but when, when a child, when a young boy came of that age, everyone knew of it. everyone knew everybody 's business, which also plays an important thought here in our scripture. Everyone knew about Mary anyway, keeping that going, it seems that the language indicates that she feels or she senses. Uh, an urgency here it might indicate that she had a place of authority or maybe she, was, she could have actually been related to this, to this, um, this couple that was getting married. Um, weddings back then were a big deal, uh, a, a real big deal, uh, especially in these uh, small circles where people might live. In our culture, I mean, it can be a big deal, um, but not like it was to them. Um, It was much bigger of a deal. Um, Everyone would be involved. The buzz would go throughout all the different villages, uh, throughout every village, and everyone would become so excited about it. Um, And and today, it's not the same kind of excitement. And I want to say, because um, just the craziness of, of today, you know, the busyness of today, our scheduling, our work. Um, Can we make it? We'll see, you know, um, send out a reminder thing. What do you call that? Save that date, right? You look at the counter. Save it. How am I going to rearrange my schedule to make that date? And But when you get there, there's still that excitement. You know, you're witnessing a couple getting married. They they, 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 they they say the biggest lie they ever will make, you know, for better or worse, rich or poor, sickness and health. You know, a year into it, they're looking for help, right? Oh, he doesn't love me. He doesn't think I'm attractive. You know, it's better or worse. Someone told me, look, I said, well, when's the last time you told her you loved her? And he goes, look, I told her that when we got married, and if anything changes, I'll let her know. That doesn't work. It doesn't work. No, there was, there was great excitement then, and still even today, maybe not as much. And man, did the Jewish people know how to throw a wedding. You think we know how to throw a wedding. Uh, they would have the first part of it, and it's a very short part of it, the, the, the ceremony, the the spiritual part. And then there's seven days of this feast going on. They really knew how to put a wedding together. And man, in verse 3, when it indicates that they had run out of wine. And you see the urgency in Mary's tone there. She, you know, they don't have any wine. You know, um, running out of wine at a wedding in that culture was an inconvenience. It wasn't like, oh, well, we'll just slip out and go get more supplies for it. No, when you were out, you were out. There was no turning back. And, uh, and in their culture, um, hospitality was highly esteemed. And um, if you were summoned or invited to a wedding or, or a meal or some kind of family gathering or whatever... To run out of food was a direct uh, insult to the family. Something that it's very hard, because of their culture, very hard uh, to have a comeback in society. You would be the talk of the town. Oh, did you hear Mary and Joe got married? And, oh yeah, they ran out of the wine halfway through it. What's wrong with those people? They, you know, how could they have run out of, you know, T bone steaks and, you know, lobster. Well, maybe that was not clean foot, But anyway, it, it's just it's it's just a bad mark against you, your family, and it's considered an insult. And the, you can just picture this this bride and groom. And if it was brought to their attention, it will later on. But was it brought right away to them when Mary, if she was a relative, a part of organizing? Did she go right to the family uh, to, of the party, you know, and say, sorry to tell you this, but we're out. There's, there's nothing left. What was the reason why? Well, could could have been they were too poor. Did they miscalculate? Um, you know, did um, too, too, too many people sign? Uh, there wasn't wedding invitations, by the way. This, the, the announcement would just be made. And when that announcement's made... All the villages invited out. So how do you calculate something like that? Maybe just poor calculations. We don't know. Um, But but it's amazing to me that Jesus will step in. And he will rescue them from their embarrassment, their awkwardness. He will. And again, I I try not to make a personal application with every little detail in the scriptures. Because we we would be in verse 1 for the whole day. But how many of us can attest to that? That Jesus had seen us in an awkward situation and somehow, because that's his heart, he bails us out somehow, doesn't he? When we think we're heading into something disastrous, something that I'll never recover from, man, is this pretty awkward, man, he steps in somehow and he bails us out. And again, I love Mary too. She knows his heart. You know, she she comes and she doesn't make this a long intercession period. It's just, she's interceding. They have no wine. You could just see her panicking. This is bad, Jesus. And you think Jesus showed any concern or alarm or fret or panic? Mary, 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 you know. And it, it tells me too that our intercessions that we make for people don't have to be very lengthy they just have to be accurate if you want someone saved Jesus it's your will that none perish bring them to the cross you know intercession just means that somehow you're interceding for somebody and you got a hold of God's heart and it doesn't have to be this long religious kind of prayer it just says, "Lord, I'm going to panic here. I need help." Amen, guys. Um, I don't think she's demanding Jesus. I'm just. Th- I think that Mary is just hopeful that Jesus would step in, and he does. And no doubt, she's looking around. She's just. She's pondering all this, and she, She's not. I don't think she's looking at Jesus directly. You know, how many are there? We don't know. We can speculate. You know, there's some theologians try to tell us how many live in that region. There could have been hundreds of people here. And she's looking around, but she sets her eyes just on one person. And she knows who to go to with this problem, just like you and I. Sometimes we have the tendency to look around and think, oh, that person can help, that person can help. But in reality, there's only one person that can help us. And we have to step right to him and say, Jesus, they have no wine. This is going to destroy this couple. They won't even be able to remain in these villages. They'll be a laughing stock. They'll be humiliated. Could you do anything about it? So she brings the need directly to him. In verse 4, Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet come. Jesus understood that her question was just more, or had to do with more, Than just running out of wine, you know. I my hour has not yet come. She's asking for, again, more than just for providing wine. She's asking for a platform. Now, now here's where we kind of, you know, sit back, get put yourself there. Why is she asking for this? Why is she... She she, Yes, I want my friends to be bailed out here. But Jesus, this could be a platform. Was she thinking that this could be a time when Jesus could demonstrate who he was? Well, that was already done in the Jordan River. Was she looking for for a platform to bail herself out? Was she looking for a bailout? Well, why would Mary... You know, the the chaste virgin wanted to be bailed out of what? Well, we have a hint of what it was um, that she had to endure as this chaste virgin. Not everyone in that area, and remember, we're talking about a region, not everyone believed her testimony. She could have been 16 years of age, and all of a sudden, a visitation from an, an angel, don't be afraid, Mary, for that thing which is in you, Is from the most holy. This is a God given thing. This isn't a human nature thing. This is a God nature thing. For that which is born within you. You'll call him Emmanuel. You'll call him a a prince. A counselor. The mighty God. She's only 16. 17. At the, the oldest. And then all the rumors start to circulate. Mary's pregnant. Did you hear is it Joseph's? I guess so. He, he was betrothed to her. Is he going to stone her? Is he going to put her to death? Oh, no, I heard that he loved her too much. He's going to put her away privately. Oh, my goodness, really? Jesus dealt with this when he was in his public ministry. There's this dialogue going on between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he finally gets a little, you know, kind of tweaked at them and says, listen, your father's the devil. And they turn around and notice what it tells us. He says, well, at least we weren't born in fornication. Now the truth comes out. That thing that Mary claimed is all false. False. The question, guys, is Mary looking for a platform to bail herself out? Could you please just prove that what I've been saying has been true? And Jesus turned around, and I don't want to paraphrase it to make myself sound harsh, but when he says, my hour has not come, he says, Mary, you have nothing to do with that. You'll embrace that lie. Because you don't have to worry what people say about you. God knows the truth. One of the best things you can do when, when there's gossip or slander against you is let it die. Don't look for a platform. Don't look for a bailout. Proverbs says, wherever, where, where there is no wood, the fire will go out. And it goes a lot, out a lot faster if you stop adding fire to it. And maybe that's what she's trying to do here. He goes on, and when he uses this word, woman, again, uh I don't think you would appreciate if I said the woman, Pad, Pad, he's coming up here. You know, she probably would take a front to that in our culture, right? But in their culture, if I called someone a woman, it was a term of endearment. So he's not harsh with her. He's frank. He's truthful. But he says woman. And you notice he doesn't call her mom or mother. He's, he's separating himself He's saying, Mary, it's no longer a mother-son relationship. And I'm sure in those silent years you heard mom, son, mom, son. There was that kind of a relationship. But when Jesus entered into his public ministry, he never called her mother again. It's it's as though Jesus is just separating himself. Why? Because he understood the, the prophet Simeon there in the temple. And he looked at Mary and he goes, you know what, Mary? This kid here will be the, for the raising and the following of many. And he will bring a dagger to your heart. He was referencing the cross. You're going to see your son, God's son, die on a cross. And it'll be like a dagger going through your heart. So when Jesus, well, pardon me. When Mary saw Jesus die on the cross, she didn't just see a son, but she saw a Savior. When he said, what do I have to do with you? Again, I, I, the, the wording's harsh in the old king. I don't know what translation you're rendering or reading out of. But again, what have I to do with you? It's just the way they were communicating. He was not being harsh with him, And I can tell by that because she doesn't stamp away and go, "Well, I lost that opportunity. And man, what a platform to demonstrate who you are. She just turns around and she looks at the boys and I can just see this mother. Like, I know what he's thinking. You know, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. I think that's the kind of mom she was. And she goes, you make sure they're completely empty. Because the Holy Spirit makes sure that they... It tells us they were completely empty. And, they, and then they were filled to the brim. So it wasn't as some, some of the liberals would say, well, it was, the, the pots were half filled and they took whatever wine was left over and they diluted it up to the top. Nuh-uh. Why would the governor, the... The, the, the guy running the marriage saying, man, this is the best stuff I've ever tasted. This is great. It was a miracle. So again, I don't think either one of them were being harsh with them. And I'll tell you something, guys. That one of the greatest counsels you could ever give someone is this statement right here. Whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Yeah, And, I, and listen, I'm here for you. I really am. And I'll give you all my heart, all my ear, my attention. So will Jerry, so will Juan, Richie. But what we're going to tell you, whatever God's told you to do, just go do it. And honestly, don't drag me into it. Because what am I going to do? Tell you what to do with what God's telling you to do? I'll mess it up. That's kind of relationship he wants with his fellow, guys, uh, uh, sisters. he, He wants that kind of relationship where we would have an ear to hear what he says. And he said, this is what I just want you to do. And I want you to step out and to do it. And I'm sure, and I'm not trying to just, you know, promote out of Egypt. It's not my style. But I'm sure many of those that are involved in that ministry heard the voice of God. And they just were obedient and stepped out. Even at many costs, they were obedient to God. And I love that. About many of these different ministries that are out there. So it tells us in verse 6 that there were set, there were six uh, water pots of stone, and after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firklings apiece, about, pardon me, 30 gallons apiece. So we probably, after they're all filled, maybe 120, 160, 30 gallons of, of, um, of water there. But they were empty, they, they were bone dry. Uh, these pots were used for ceremonial purposes, um, ceremonial washing. Uh, the Jews believed that as they meandered through the day and, and, they, they, and brushing up against people, Gentiles or something unclean, um, they did not want to partake of a meal because they considered themselves Unclean. So they had this ceremonial washing of hands. And if, in fact, if you go to uh, the, the wailing wall today, there in Jerusalem, off to the left-hand side, looking direct to it, you still see these little fountains there with these little tiny cups. And they developed a way for the water to run down the hand and down the elbow, kind of shake it a little bit, where uh, in their minds, and they're thinking, okay, now I am purified, I am clean, and now whatever I take, I don't take internally. And Jesus said, listen, I hate to... I I hate to tell you this, but it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man. But what comes out of it. We're without the heart. And you should see that menu, that list of things, you know. We don't have to worry about what we're sticking in our mouth. Well, I shouldn't say that. Spiritually speaking, (laughs) there's some grave concerns of what goes in my house around, in my mouth around my house. I I got this flu last week. And I know one of my carrying monkeys gave it to me, you know. One of my grandkids. But um, you just... But what, it's not what goes into the mouth it's, uh, uh, that defiles a man, but what comes out of the heart. And so that's why these pots were there, and that's why they were empty. And that also is an indication that there were more people than, than they expected. Because that's one thing. Like food, you didn't run out of food, you didn't run out of wine. That was a great insult. You never, ever, it was ungodly, you didn't hear of it. You don't ever run out of this purifying water stuff here, man. How would the the guests come in and wash properly to eat your food and to drink your wine? They wouldn't be able to do it. So Jesus tells them in verse seven, "Go ahead and fill the water pots, and then fill them to the brim." Or, uh, well, they filled them to the brim brim. And again, I, you have to note this: well, even if you're teaching this passage of scripture, you have to note they were empty and they were filled to the very top. Because of the critics. Liberals of such saying that it was just diluted wine. He says in verse 8, draw it out, give it to the governor of the feast. They bared it. Now, the governor of the feast would be the wedding coordinator. He is the one in charge. He is the ultimate authority there at this feast. Uh, The buck stops with him. And um, probably this guy has done hundreds of weddings, you know, throughout the course of his vocation there. And, uh, he, and, and no doubt he knows what he's doing. Amen, guys? The, 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 this isn't some guy just come getting into the trade. This guy knows what he's doing. And it tells us in verse 9 that when the rulers of the feast had tasted the, the water that was made wine, he doesn't know where it comes from. But the servants, they drew it. They give it to the governor of the wine uh, called the, 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 of the bridegroom. He says, well, look. Well, I'm sorry. He calls the bridegroom. You think the bridegroom was sweating now? Now, now now the wedding coordinators call me. Man, I've made a grave mistake here. Now I am going to be the laughing stock of the village. Oh, my goodness, what is he going to do? Rebuke me? But it tells us that the governor of the feast says unto him, every man at the beginning does set forth the good wine. And when they have all gotten pickled, <laughs> just again, Harry's paraphrase, then that which is worse, but thou has kept the good until now. And again, he's saying, this isn't just good wine, because they did, they did have that at the beginning. And that was the custom, put out the best stuff. So they were drinking the, the good wine. he goes, but you, you somehow saved the best for the last. And uh, he almost congratulates him. Look at verse eleven. This was the beginning of the miracle. I'm sorry, of miracles did Jesus, in Canaan of Galilee, and manifest forth His glory. His disciples believed on Him. Now, again, there was a purpose for this miracle, because and one of the purposes was that the disciples would grow, and their faith would grow, and they would get maybe a, 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 a deeper grasp, a tighter grasp on who Jesus is. You gotta remember, this is the first one. This isn't too long after the experience the, at his baptism. This is the first one. They're looking at each other. What else can this guy what else can this guy do? Wait, wait 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 till they're in the middle of a storm and they yell at him and say, don't you care that we perish? And he would stand up and grab a hold of the mask and he would rebuke the storms. And even Peter feared him. What kind of man is this that even the waves and the storms obey its, obey its very commands? This is nothing, but yet they thought this was something else. Seeing these these pots of water, you know, miraculously turn into wine, you know, uh, some would call this signs and wonders, you know. And, and listen, uh, signs and wonders can do great harm. Uh, great harm. I've seen it over the course of my ministry. The individuals that all they do is seek for signs and miracles, everything about these three moves that are happening today within our our generation our time you know and i 'm not going to belabor that i don 't have the time but um that's what mainly they're seeking for just signs and wonders who's an apostle and who's not an apostle uh, are they more important than the original apostles no they they, they hold a bigger and grander place in the apostleships of apostles you know it's nothing but signs and wonders and even jesus says it's a wicked and an adulterous generation that seeks after signs but signs and wonders happen all the time we're just not to seek after them what is a sign a sign is something if it's on a storefront a sign will tell you what's on side what's inside it's giving you everything that's inside the store that's a sign wonders are different Wonders are something you could be going a thousand miles an hour during the course of your life and you're just thinking everything. And God has a way of doing something so wondrous that he just stops you or at least he slows you down a little bit to reveal who he is. And how many times has he done that for us? You fear the worst. And then you look at the sign and you just say, you see, Jesus is here. He's inside. Everything you need to get through, He's in there. Don't don't worry. Fear thou not. I am with thee. Don't be dismayed. I am your God. I will help you. I'll hold you with the right hand of my righteousness. That's the sign. And sometimes He slows us down with so many wondrous things. I I experience that more than signs. How God, I could be going a thousand miles an hour, and all of a sudden, He, I, my brakes are slowly being tapped on, and I'm just starting to see God's hand. And miraculously, how he's controlling every little facet of my life. That's something very wondrous. You don't seek after it. Don't ever seek after it. Because it's in our nature to want to elevate the miracle more than the one performing the miracle. Amen, guys? Um, they grow. They grow. They believe on him. They see that he is... Um, over creation. If someone can take water and turning it into wine, you know, that is something they have never seen before. Hey, listen, why is he doing all this? And I'm going to try to wrap this up because I want to bring Santos back out here. But why, why is he doing this? He could have just said, you know what? Now I have so many different signs and so many different wonders, you know, for these guys that are behind me, my disciples. I don't need to do this. But I get it, Mary. I know the dilemma that you're in. And uh, frankly, honey, you're going to have to just live with that. I don't have to do a thing. But there's so many. Because Jesus did this miracle. There are so many things that we see. So many things that we see in the heart of Jesus. One of them is that he didn't mind going to weddings. He didn't mind that. I'm sure he, he went to more than just one. If he was according to the customs of the Jew, he went to them all. And I think he thoroughly enjoyed himself. I think he, he wasn't sitting around, you know, like this, with a halo around his head, you know, and with a the smug look. No, I think he was a demonstration of He was a demonstration of joy. I believe that if you looked at Jesus, you would have to smile. You know, he's contagious. It's like when I get around this guy in the back here, Santos. He's, I don't know, he's addicting. You just want to hug the guy. With all that God has done in his life and how God is using him now. You know, I want to say this and, and jot this down. You know, something important for us to remember as Christians, we can never be fully like him if we lose our capacity of joy. We pray, oh, I want to be more like you. We sing songs, God, make me more like you. Lord, I want to be like you. And when we walk around with these sour puss sometimes, and we walk around like we're defeated, did Jesus walk around like that ever? The only time we see him above that, that point of anxiety is in the garden, and he handled that alone. Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Sweating great drops of blood. um, Physically, it's called hemorrhagiosis. It's a rupturing of the glands in your forehead under extreme anxiety. He was under so much anxiety, but it's still. During the course of his ministry, he was a man that was filled with joy. And if we want to be more like him, don't lose that capacity of joy in your life. Find out what's robbing it. Get into your Bibles. Study the life of Christ. Some of these books I read from, you know, like E.M. Bounds and, and Tozier, and I get it, they're challenging. You know, Why Revival Tarries is another one. By the time you're done reading those books, I just want to dig a hole, sing the blues, and bury myself. But listen, they're important to read. Don't get me wrong. They stir up my heart about making those times of intercession to be broken before the Lord. I get that. But that is not the majority of our lives. The majority of our lives, according to, a, to Jesus and according to Galatians chapter 5, it should be the joy of the spirit. I get it, guys. We live in a, a crazy society the world and its baseness is is trying to di- dictate something to us. You look around, and I, I, I believe um, Santos mentioned this. We see terrorism. When I, I was out on the west coast, and I heard about the shootings, I couldn't I couldn't stop crying. Innocent brothers and sisters from a deranged man takes their lives. Jesus is right. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. But does that, even that dictate to us? You know, if we should have joy in our life. Joy is different than happiness, folks. Joy is something spiritual. Happiness is predicated upon maybe our circumstances. Not so with joy. Joy, unspeakable joy, full of glory, can only come from the Holy Spirit. Again, there are those that gauge their spirituality based on their sourness. We see that in certain denominations. How badly can I whip myself? How many steps do I need to climb up on in repentance? How many prayers can I say in a day? How many? How much money can I give sacrificially? Give until it hurts. Isn't th- People aren't taught that. And then they walk around the rest of the week going, how am I going to pay my bills? And God didn't answer this prayer. And no wonder they're walking. I call it Eeyoreism. You know who Eeyore is, right? My generation. If you raise kids, you know who that guy is. Oh, it's me. How's your day? Oh, it's just been filled with trials, but God is good. Dude. Really, I feel like cleaning my ear out with a carrot scraper after talking with you. Stop it now. Am I saying that um, there aren't going to be times when we're challenged and, and, and felt, feel like we're trodden under? Sure, there will be. But the times that we feel trodden under are just opportunities for God to lift us back up. To be frank with you, too many people think that's spirituality, and it's not. A spiritual person, according to Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness. Jesus said this in John 15, These things I spoke unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Like those water pots with the wine up to the brim. And you're, you're filled with this joy. And you know, I'm telling you, you can't keep your eyes on the world. And you can't keep your eyes on the trial. If you keep your eyes on Christ and make that appeal to the Holy Spirit. To fill you with His Spirit. Those are the things that you can experience. One is joy. One is joy. You look at the book of Philippians. Hope book is riddled, filled with that idea of joy. And I bring that to your attention because Paul the Apostle wrote that when he was in prison, strapped over a log, being beaten, and he was still telling the church he could still experience joy, and joy, unspeakable joy. He would not allow it to affect his joy, even imprisonment. When we read Matthew 25 in one of the parables, we learn that joy is one one of the characteristics of heaven. You know, I can't, these guys that like to walk around with Eorism, boy, are they going to get a surprise when they get to heaven. You know, that parable about the faithful servant, he says this. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things, and I will make you a ruler over many things. And the last statement he makes to the faithful servant, enter into the joy, the joy of the Lord. That's what you're going to experience in heaven. You know how sometimes you get on a thought, and, and I'm not referring back to our BC days, but you get that smile and your jaw almost hurts. There's no pain in heaven, but that's what that joy is going to be like in heaven. We're going to finally see him. Tell me that doesn't bring excitement to your hearts. And Corinthians saying, then we'll know all things as they're to be known. All your questions will be answered. You'll see your loved ones. How many of us have loved ones in heaven already? I can't wait to see my mom. She died so young. I just want to see her. I'm with my kid brother who gave his heart to the Lord. In bed, six months, lost a leg, and was going home to be with the Lord. I said, Brian, I just need to know you're right with the Lord. He goes, bro, you don't lay in the hospital for six months and not know you're right with the Lord. Amen. Even when he was checking out, my sister, and we were standing next to his bed. And I, I'm telling God's honest truth. I saw a smile come across his face, even with a tube going down his throat. And then he flatlined and went home. I've seen it. Guys, that's what we will experience in heaven. Joy. Also, another thing we get from this miracle is that there's an endorsement here. There's an endorsement for the institution of marriage. You know, um, marriage is defined by God. And it's defined by the word of God. There should be no confusion about it. One man taking one woman living together for the rest of their lives. That was God's intention you know, to produce a healthy home, to produce a family with children, you know. And for those that will advocate uh, homosexuality and that homosexual marriage is is right because Jesus never openly condemned it. He never even dealt with it. So they're saying, so therefore Jesus said it was okay, same-sex marriage. Well, what they forgot, what they forgot or they forget is that Jesus predominantly was ministering to Jewish people. It wasn't a second thought to the Jewish mind. Homosexuality, a man lying with a man, woman with a woman, you know, was condemned in the, in the Old Testament. He didn't have to bring something up that was unnecessary to them. Later on, when we look into the epistles and we look at Paul's writing, Peter, even Jude, talking about strange flesh, it's, it's totally condemned in the Bible. We don't handle it that way. We don't handle it that way. We don't go and make someone feel condemned. I love what Patty shared about reaching them with the love of Christ. How many of us, can I just see by the raising of hand, that's how you were reached? God loved you. Would you raise your hand if that's how it was with you? Same here. I couldn't believe I had a heavenly father who would love me, because my earthly father hated me. At he demonstrated that he hated us. For God the Father, my I can call my brother, look, Danny, we can call him dad? He goes, well, there's a word called Abba, which means dad. Yeah, I guess we can. And he loves me? Yeah. Loves you so much he died for me. For me. At first I said, Dan, you're whack. Nobody loves that much. Later on, 1973, I discovered he did. So we never give that image that God is ready to judge and condemn, you know, turn or burn. Please don't, don't ever handle anyone, no matter what their struggles are. It's by the love of Christ. And we don't love him because he loved us. I mean, we love him because he loved us first. It's not the other way around. Um, but, he, but he instituted the marriage. Um, Jesus, we knew, uh, if you wanted to make a scriptural argument, Jesus uh, said in, in Matthew 5, he says, don't think that I've come to do, do away with the law and the prophets, all they, that they taught. So I haven't come away to do with God's ideals on marriage and um, homosexuality. I haven't come to do away with that. In fact, I have come to fulfill all that. And he did. He even said in the following verse, not one dot or or, or, or crossing of the T will be undone until he comes back. And so another thing that we get um, in in this is, uh, and this might be a stretch. This couple, according to mannerisms and customs, could be anywhere between 16 to 19 years of age. They're young. They're young. Now, I get it. Uh, uh, Our society probably um, doesn't support such a young uh, couple, a young couple, couples getting married that young, you know. Uh, Jesus did. That's all I can tell you. And I would be very hesitant to tell a young couple now that God has called us into the marriage life and we want to honor him with our lives. And, and no, no matter, you know, I, I don't think I would ever um, try to uh, discourage them. If, if, they, if there's a, a, witness, a witness of the Spirit in our hearts that this thing is of God. And again, it's, I know the cultures are different. I know. Erm uh, and I, we were married. We were young. I think Erm was 18 when we got married and uh, I was 20. And uh, and if you had asked me when I was 24, do it young, I would say, don't do it. Don't do it, it's too hard. We didn't have anyone to help us. Literally, we didn't. And um, um, I probably would have discouraged people. But looking back now, looking back, oh my goodness, all the greatest, the greatest things that Irma and I ever accomplished as a couple The experiences that we went through, I I don't think I would ever trade them in now. I mean, you know, just getting saved out of the Jesus people movement and taking our kids like a bunch of hippies in a 1969 Volkswagen bus. You know, throwing them and going to all the festivals, the Jesus festivals, and listening to Honey Tree and and Love Song. We did that together, you know. Learning how to pay bills together. Trying to learn how to raise kids together. Were there hard times? Yes. Yes. But they were times that God took us through, and I—I I don't think I would ever trade that in now. I wouldn't, you know. So I'm not counseling anyone, you know. You—if you're a couple and you're going to get married and you're planning on it, you need to be seeking God. You know, my marital counseling is just that. You need to seek God for what He has in your life and what He wants. But I—I I, I see that, and as long as a couple is honoring God through their relationship, I. Again, I don't see Jesus saying, wait a minute, you two, you're kind of young here. You didn't even plan this wedding right. Look, you ran out of wine already. Uh, He blessed them with his presence. He blessed them as a couple. And when Jesus blesses... uh, Let me go on my third thing. I'm going to have to wrap this up. Jesus loves to bless. A wedding and he loves to bless a marriage. One ingredient though, and this is what I learned out of this miracle, that he has to be invited. He has to be invited. You know, to, the greatest thing you can do to ensure your, your, uh, your marriage or wedding, if that's what you're planning, or gosh, any, any circumstance, if, to ensure your success is to invite Jesus to be in the midst of it. You know, and uh, I know CNN, um, money.com, years ago put out this and they said that the average cost of a wedding in the United States, get a load of this, $26,327 for the average wedding in America. Um, For the whole year, they estimate $125 billion will be um, spent on weddings. It's almost this this idea that if we have a super duper super duper 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 wedding, well, my that's a great kickoff, and we'll, we got a good chance at this. When in in all truthfulness, that puts so much. Pressure on a couple, and, and I'm not advocating one or the other, so please don't get me wrong. Irm and I, we got married, I wasn't got yeah, 500 bucks, I think it was, and I'm not advocating that either. Uh, all the guys are saying, you know, the women don't you even think about it, you know, but um, just don't think that it, it takes a lot to have something ordained and blessed by God. Ours was potluck, the church came together. I didn't know any different. I thought you could buy a ring anywhere. I went to JM Fields. I bought over a ring, you know, it was 125 bucks. Now of course I've gotten her a better one since then. She's not still sporting that one, but uh <laughs> But we never took that into the equation. We didn't think we have to have this bigger wedding to make it better. I have to spend all our, my savings on something. Is it only a symbol? This is only a symbol. It, it, it's, it's made of a precious metal, yeah, because love can cost us sometimes. It's made in a circle because love n- it's continuous. It never ends. So I get that. And plus, no women hit up on me when I'm wearing this, you know. <laughs> I think there's one thing I do would, I would like to say though the marriage goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 even before the fall of man and the reason I bring that up to you is cuz God had every intention to be a part of their marriage for the rest of their lives God wanted to be a part of it the fall of man is what severed that but we can say this if he's invited he never leaves and it's his desire to be a part of your relationship, whether you're just starting off or you've been at it for a while. He wants to be in the middle of it. And that's how it's successful. With other helps, I know. Um, but um, one, Another thing is in Ecclesiastes 4.12, it talks about you know, if, uh, if one prevails against him, two, sh- two shall withstand him. And a 3 cord, uh, threefold cord is not quickly broken. Um, what he's saying there, if someone is overpowered, you know, if one person is overpowered, two are able to stand against that. But three intertwine together. It's really hard to break that. And you want to know why I think marriages are going down the tubes? I mean, there's many reasons. I'm not a counselor by any stretch. But, um, but I think the reason a lot of them are going down the tubes is because Jesus was never, ever invited to be a part of it. There's no prayer life between the wife and Jesus, no prayer life between the husband and Jesus. They don't come together. They don't go to church together. And then the pressures come on, one can't stand for sure, two might maybe, but three, three together. That's not easily broken. And um, I I guess, uh, 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 Brother Santas, would you come out and let's wrap this up. Listen, guys, I know today there's a lot of stuff going on that would dictate to us whether our marriages would make it or not make it, you know. I know there's a lot of pressure. I know there's financial pressures that many of us go through. And then what we do in the midst of those pressures is we try to figure a a bailout scheme or strategy or maybe that's an emotional... You can make your way up, bro. Or emotional one. And so you read the books on that struggle and... And what you don't realize, that that third part of that cord is whatever helps you're going towards. It's not Jesus. Some would say, well, the Lord led me to this book. Well, maybe he had, but it's really not Jesus, and it's not the power of his Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that works. And I and I, I remind myself when I go through the struggles. For two, almost two, three years now, we have been going through a, a struggle, and, and we're... I, Irma and I feel like it's, we're climbing out of it. B- but I'll tell you what kept Irma and I together mentally. And 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 was Jesus was invited in this trial. When we lost our home. I thought I'd be the strong one. And I stood against it. Well, I crumbled. When we th- were told we were not allowed to go back and take anything out of it. Because of the um, the abatement issues. And the Irma crumbled. And I couldn't help her. But when we asked Jesus to come in the midst of it. Not only were we able to handle that, to lose everything in 20 seconds, but we were able um, to bury a brother who died of PSP, uh, progressive supernuclear palsy. I was able to go through with buying this church and selling the other church. And I just realized it was Jesus was invited into the midst of it. You want it to work, you ask Jesus to be part of it. Don't look to man for your help. Look towards Jesus. Amen. Love you guys. I'll let Santos end us.